the record. Uh, that rap song you just heard didn't come at my request, uh, which normally that is the case. Uh, that must have been Pastor Paul. I see you, Pastor Paul. Appreciate the love. Uh, but uh, that was great. Unexpected. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, going to share the Word of God with you here today. Um, but if you'll allow me a, a little bit of latitude here, I have a, a rather lengthy introduction. Uh, which we're going to get to Romans chapter 2, pick up right where we left off last week, but um, I'm going to share uh, some other verses prior to that. So you can turn to Romans 2, but have your Bibles ready, uh, because uh, like I said, I want to I kind of lead us into where I think Paul is taking us in Romans chapter 2. Uh, so as part of prep time, what I thought I would do is I would look back at the last four sermons that were preached here at Living Water in this Roman series. And if you were to go back from where we are today, which is Romans 2, verse 17, and you go back uh, to cover those four sermons, you would find 40 verses. And so it kind of worked out a nice round number. And I looked at those, and you could try this exercise yourself, and I think you will find a particular... Uh, focus or theme contained in those 40 verses. And so what I did is I just simply did a copy and paste. I compiled some of the words and phrases that you've heard from this pulpit from the Word of God, and I kind of just brought them all together. And I want to share them with you right now so that you can perhaps spot the motif. So here we go. The words are, are these. The wrath of God, ungodliness, unrighteousness, futility of thought, foolish hearts darkened, lusts, impurity, dishonorable passions, shameless acts, debased minds, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hate, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventors of evil, those who are disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The judgment of God, people with hard and penitent hearts who are self-seeking, disobedient. And then we come full circle once again with the word wrath, and just for good measure, we throw in the word fury. So as the phrase goes, it's been some tough sledding in here for the last month. And to be sure, if you were to look back at those, those 40 verses, you're going to see concepts like the patience of God. You're going to see the kindness of God. And I'd like to think that from this pulpit, you also heard about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God and the hope we have in Christ alone, just to balance things out. But make no mistake about it. I think it's obvious what's contained in those verses that we've looked at in the last four weeks is some hard truth about our own sinful condition. And we haven't even gotten to the death blow, which comes next chapter in chapter 3, because Paul's got some more bullets loaded in the chamber, something to look forward to, Lord willing. But Paul is laboring here in these first chapters of Romans where he's going to lay out the gospel for us. Remember, I am unashamed of the gospel, he says. And this is the most thorough exposition we have of it. And he wants us right out the chute to become keenly aware of one stark reality. And that is that people are sinful. 
It's been said that what you think about yourself is the hinge on which the door of salvation swings. What I think is meant by that is that your perception of self has a lot to do with where you will spend eternity. So before we get into Romans 2, allow me, if you will, to to share somewhat of a biblical anthropology. Not in total, but in part. And whenever you set out to do something like this, I, I think there's, it's critical that you maintain balance because we can easily get out of balance when we do this. For one, every human being that's ever been created is a mago day, meaning made in the image of God. And with that comes certain uh, value, inherent value and dignity that God ascribes to every person walking the planet. Simply because God says so. It's it's not up for debate. You have it. Everybody has it. However, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, the entire game changes. Everything changes. I don't know that we still fully can understand all that went down in that garden when two naked vegetarians chose to go their own way. They were told, here's what to do. They said, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to do me. I'm going to do what I want. And it's thrust all of creation into, uh, into sin and what we call the fall. Now, we don't lose the Imago Day. We have that. That, that. that remains, but it's been severely marred up until this very day. And so that's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it doesn't take long in the Word of God for things to progress. And we see just how bad our condition has become. We have a very vivid description just a few chapters later, uh, just prior to that cataclysmic event we call the flood. I'm going to share with you two verses that bookend the flood account. Genesis 6, verse 5, says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That right there is what precipitated the flood. No pun intended there, by the way. But on the other side of the flood, you go to chapter 8, you see this. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did you catch that? Not only is man evil, but evil from childhood. David, in his his famous penitent psalm, Psalm 51, says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, I heard an illustration many years ago, and it was so powerful, it stuck with me all these years. It's a bit intense, but let let me share it with you because I I think it's a good litmus test to see whether or not you share God's perspective on our sinful condition. When I first heard it, I I didn't agree. I was like, I I don't think that's right. I, I kind of rejected it. But over the years, studying the Bible, just looking at humanity, growing, maturing, I've come to reach a conclusion where I believe it's accurate. I'll lay it out for you. You can decide for yourself. It's a scenario. Imagine you're holding in your arms an 18-month-old baby. 
And that 18-month-old baby sees the shiny watch upon your wrist. And he goes for the watch. And you say, no. And then he goes for the watch again. And you pull his hand away and you say, no. And he starts to get upset. He starts to cry. He starts to even come at you with waving his hands and maybe in the direction of your face. And you say, no. This preacher who submitted this, this uh, illustration here, he said, he said, imagine if that 18-month-old baby had the strength of an 18-year-old man. He would rip the watch off your wrist, slaughter you where you stand, and walk across your bloody body without an ounce of remorse. That's pretty intense. And that's pretty challenging, I think. So whether you agree with that or not, I think it is important for us to truly understand the gospel. We must understand our own sinful condition. Like I said, in the first few chapters of Romans, this is how Paul starts. He doesn't start where a lot of modern-day evangelism starts. God loves you so much. We come out to shoot with that, the love of God. People don't have a category for that. They don't understand what that means. There's no mention of sin, righteousness, judgment. Paul doesn't begin with the love of God at all. He begins with what? The wrath of God. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says this, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Think whatever you will of uh, famous evangelist Ray Comfort. But when he witnesses to people, he'll share the gospel with people. He almost always starts that conversation with a particular question. He asks it in his New Zealand accent. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? Okay, that's my best New Zealand accent. Right? <laughs> but what do you think the answer is on the other side? almost always they return in the affirmative. Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And then what he does is he proceeds to hold up the mirror of God's law, the Ten Commandments, and he gets people to compare themselves, not against other human beings, but against the moral standard of God. And what do they find out? That they're liars, thieves, blasphemers, coveters, idolaters, etc., because prior to that, what they were doing is they were comparing themselves with the people around them. Therefore, they thought they were good. But compared to God's standard, they came to a different conclusion, hopefully. Remember years ago, many years ago, I heard a study. It was a survey. My, my memory is really foggy on this whole thing, but I'll try to lay it out for you, and I think you'll get the point. But it, it was a survey they did where they asked death row inmates that same question. People who committed a capital crime, about to be put to death. Prior to that, they asked them, and they asked them that same question. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And they would go to the first guy, and he would say, yeah. Yeah, by and large, most of them answered yes. And he would say, well, because... I only killed my victim. See, that guy over there, he raped and killed. And then they would go to that guy over there, and he would say, yeah, you know, I raped and killed, but I only did that to one person. See, that guy over here, he did it to dozens. 
Then they go to this guy over here, and he's like, yes, I raped and killed my victims, but at least I didn't eat them like Jeffrey Dahmer. That was his standard. He draws a line at eating them after raping and killing. And therefore, he thought he was good. And down the line they went. That's pretty much how, how this whole thing went. And you can imagine this to be the case. But, and I, and I imagine if they, they did this long enough, you find the worst of the worst. That guy plays the ultimate trump card, which is who? Hitler. At least I'm not Hitler. I mean, boy, if that's your standard, boy, you know, I mean, it's as if, you know, hell is a population of one, Adolf Hitler. The point is, you can always find someone worse than you. Our standard, though, is not other sinful people. It's not about just being better than the next guy and that God grades on a curve. I'm better than most, so I guess I'm okay. That's not how it works. The standard is God, his complete, absolute, total moral perfection found in the law. See, what we need to do is stop proclaiming our own goodness based upon a very highly subjective standard, I think you would agree. We instead need to agree with God about our own depravity and our own desperate, sick situation. Unless you think this is just me spouting off on my own views, using surveys and Ray Comfort, this is in the Bible. Jesus spoke about this very thing. In the Gospel of Mark, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Paul's going to go on in this letter to the Romans and say, There's none righteous. So, but Jesus is saying, I came for everybody because they all need me. They're all sick. But if you think you're not sick and you think you're righteous, apart from the righteousness of Christ, you're not going to appreciate what he has done for guilty sinners because you don't think you are one. But many people will say, okay, you know, they concede. All right, I'm not perfect. I guess if that makes me a sinner, then whatever. But I still got a good heart. People cling to that good heart notion with an ironclad kung fu grip. And Jesus knew that way back then, so he addressed it in that same Gospel of Mark, just five chapters later. He speaks about your, quote, good heart. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Sounds like the beginning of this sermon. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, this is the pill that people choke on. This is the truth they find unpalatable and therefore hard to swallow. But we must we must grasp this. Otherwise, you won't understand the gospel. You won't appreciate it. And you won't rightly apply it to your life. You know, there's a, a played out illustration. You've probably heard it, but it's good nonetheless, so I will share it. Uh, a jeweler, if he wants to display a diamond, a nice shiny diamond, he doesn't put it on a shiny background. No, he puts it on a, like a black matte background, like something like a, like a black velvet background so that the diamond would stand out. 
and the viewer can better appreciate what he or she is looking at. And if we are to look at the diamond of the gospel and truly appreciate it for all it's worth, we must lay it up against the darkness of our heart. And you say, Mike, all right, we, this is a lot to handle, and we haven't even gotten to Romans 2. Fair enough, fair enough. I said, give me some grace, okay? Let's go there now. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. I think this was necessary, though, to lay this groundwork again, because I think Paul's taking us in a direction, and we need that foundation to get there, a little platform to get us to it. So if you would stand, please. We're going to read uh, the rest of Romans 2, beginning in verse 17, but I only want to begin right now with um, verses 17 through 20. Romans chapter 2, I got the ESV. That is our Bible translation of choice here at Living Water. Romans 2, beginning in verse 17, Word of God says this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's put a pause on it right there. Thank you. You may have a seat. So right from verse 17, Paul clearly tells us who he's addressing. He says, if you call yourself a Jew. What we're going to read here is a dialogue between two Jews, the Apostle Paul and his Jewish hearer. And so envision it that way. And what I want to do is borrow the image that Pastor Ben showed us last week of two Jews seated at a table, the older one kind of representing the Apostle Paul, the younger man, the uh, Roman hearer of this letter. And so let's just start with the title Jew. comes from the tribe of Judah. Now, of course, over time, it extrapolates out. It's a descriptor for all, all Israelites, all tribes, all of the chosen people of God. They are the Jews. And they are part of a very privileged group. You say, well, how privileged are they? Well, I'll put it to you like this. The entire world is divided up into two groups. You have Jews and everybody else. I mean, that's, that's how it is even to this day for you and me. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And I think that says something about prominence right there. Reminds me of the golfer Tiger Woods, since we're talking about golf here today. Reminds me of Tiger Woods. When he was at the top of his game, before a tournament like the Masters or whatever, it was always, who you got, Tiger or the field? It wasn't Tiger or Phil Mickelson or some other golfer. It was Tiger, and then they lumped everybody else in as though they're just like average golfers, because compared to him, they, they were because Tiger had that sort of prominence. And the same is true for the Jew. And Paul goes on in these verses, he lays out all these privileges. And I want you to notice the, the kind of the tone, I think, 
he's not knocking them. He's not, this is not a critique. I don't think he's being sarcastic and trying to be a wise guy here. I think he means this. These, these are true privileges, true advantages that these Jews had. And so he presents them in a very favorable light. And, and they are advantages rightly understood and applied, though, of course. What does he say? You could follow along, find it in the text there. He says the Jews rely on the law. They, they boasted in God. They know the will of God and approve what is excellent. Why? Because they are instructed from the law. They are theoretically guides to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, and they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What is Paul saying? You're privileged. You got great advantage over all these other people groups. God chose you, gave you the law, the law of Moses, the, the Torah, basically the first five books of our Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Therefore, you got something to boast in, and it's a good kind of boasting. You boast in God, and he entrusted to them his revealed will found in the law. And with that came some responsibilities. They had the moral code. They had it. They, they could say, this is right, this is wrong. And therefore, they were a guide to the blind, a light to those walking in darkness, teachers or rabbis of children, and I would include all people who didn't possess this privileged position. It's all positive. It's all good at this point. I like how one commentator, he sums it all up. He says, the premise here in verses 17 through 20 is not that the Jews harbored inflated claims of themselves. They had good reason to boast in God. Their problem is not in overestimating their importance, but in failing to live up to it. That was a, that was a really good quote that kind of nutshells what we looked at in those verses. But there's a problem. There's a, there's a really big problem. It begins in verse 21. You then, who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Four consecutive questions that the Apostle Paul has for his Jewish hearer. And what's in view here? In a single word, hypocrisy. He's talking about hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone whose words don't match their actions. There's a disconnect there. They say one thing, and they do something else. And that's what Paul says. You're telling people don't steal? Are you stealing yourself? Preach against adultery? Committing adultery yourself? And these are questions, but I think there's more, they're, they're more than just innocent questions. I think something's being implied here. You're not practicing what you're preaching. The Jews were, were high on prominence, rather low on obedience. And this is the very issue that gets Jesus all worked up throughout the Gospels. And you see it no clearer than in uh, Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is railing against hypocrisy for like the entire chapter. I'd like you to turn there. I'll give you a second to get there because I want to go through it and give you a sampling, but it's extensive. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spitting fire at a particular group of Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees. And as far as tirades about hypocrisy, as far as those, those go, this right here is the gold standard. 
Right, Jesus goes off for like an entire chapter. Let me read a good chunk of it to you, beginning right in verse 1. I figured I can't say it any better than he said it here to, the, to these uh, folks in his audience. Verse 1, uh, Matthew 23, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Remember, they got the law. They're telling you good things but not the works they do. For they preach, but don't practice. Drop down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Drop down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In case you weren't aware, now you know. Jesus, he ain't big on hypocrisy. Not at all. And I like how R.C. Sproul put it. He said, Jesus understood that nothing devalues the truth more quickly than the counterfeit. And it could be said that we're all hypocrites to some degree, right? I mean, my, my words don't always match my actions. I, I'll be exhibit A. Right? I mean, I, I like to think I'm not a, a raging hypocrite and that's this all that this, you know, defines my life, but I don't always live up to the things I say, and I say a lot of things. And so I, sometimes there's a disconnect there. But if this is something that maybe you, you think, ah, I, I kind of am a hypocrite, you know, I, this, is, this is an issue for me in my life, I don't think the remedy is all that complicated. Let me just give you about the most basic advice that, that, that I could give. I think it's found in the Word of God if this is an issue for you. Instead of pretending to be something that you're not, instead, just be honest with people. Be open and transparent about your struggles. You know, don't pretend you don't have any, because you do. We all do. There's people who talk about them, and there's people who don't. But we all have them. So as much as humanly possible, what I think we need to do is let our words match up with our actions. And when you blow it, and you will, own it. Just, hey, I, you know, I was kind of being hypocritical there. I was being disingenuous, you know. I, I, I think if you just, if you confess, 
I mean, that, that people respond typically with grace. It, the problem, though, is that people have is they get into trouble when they run their mouth pretending to be something they're, that they're not. And they do it as a way of life. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Because when you do that, something happens. Something very bad happens. And we see it in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember back in chapter 1 with the Gentiles and that downward spiral that they went on? What, what kicked that all off? It was what? A failure to give thanks to God and to honor him. And what Paul's saying here, he's saying the same is true for you, you hypocritical Jew. You're just like the Gentile. You dishonor God. And I got to think that sting in the ear of the Jewish here. Like, like really? I mean, you, you, you think I, I'm, I'm just like that godless Gentile? Paul's saying, yes. You're both dishonoring God. But it gets much worse than that. Because you're causing God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. And when we talk about blasphemy, typically it's, it's thought of as only done with the mouth. You know, we, we take the Lord's name in vain, JC, OMG, that sort of thing. And that's, the blasphemy is limited to that. It's not. It goes much deeper than that. Because our words and actions can cause others to blaspheme God. How does that work? Well, in the mind of an unbeliever, what exists there is this link, a link between us and their view of God. They see us as representatives of God, rightly so, right? I mean, that, 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 that was true for the Jews. It's true for us as Christians. And what people do is they, they project our words and actions onto their view of the God we say we worship. So if you say, like I do, my life has been changed by Jesus Christ. I, I, I'll stand up here and say that. My life is 14, 15 years ago radically upended. Major overhaul of the heart. He's changed the course of my life forever, my affections, everything. All is changed. All right? I say that. But if I say that and I act in a way that is inconsistent with that claim, unbeliever will look at my life and say, some Jesus, and God is blasphemed. And that's the word they use, P-P-F-F-T. I'm sure it's in the dictionary somewhere. But I feel the weight of this, right? I, whether I like it or not, I'm considered religious. I'm the religious guy in the family. I am. I do this sort of thing. If, if anybody's religious up in this joint, it's me right now. <laughs> I'm delivering a sermon, got a Bible, quoting verses, going to officiate the Lord's Supper. Man, you don't get more religious than this right here. And from time to time, uh, what I will do is I take uh, one of the church vans home with me. Uh, maybe my van's not working. There's a picture of our church van. I thought I, you could use a visual in case you're unfamiliar with what it looks like. Big van, big living water logo. The words bringing the living water of Jesus to a thirsty world plastered on the back. And I'll take that home, park it right out in front of my house because, I don't know, maybe I got an outreach event early the next morning or something like that. 
And I remember on a Saturday, this is a true story, it was a Saturday, I had the van at the house, and I'm doing some yard work. And I got the weed whacker out there. And weed whackers and I do not get along. I don't know what it is. I have a really nice one now, but I paid like $300 for it. Like it's got the blades on it, like industrial strength. You could chop down small trees with this thing. I mean, it's way more information than you needed for this story. But prior to having that weed whacker that I love, I had the kind with the, the line, the, the, the twine, you know, you wind it up or whatever, which, you know, theoretically, you're supposed to tap it on the ground and the line feeds out, right? Which never works. It just, maybe the first week of owning it, it works. But, you know, after a while, I tap it, the thing line runs out like this, or it goes out by, like, you know, and, and I take the head off, and I, you know, I, I try to see what's going on, and the line springs out like this. I'm getting extremely frustrated this day with my weed whacker, to the point that I took it and went up to a tree and bashed it over and over again against that tree. Just going to town, wrapped that sucker right around the tree, broken weed whacker pieces all over the place. Having a tantrum in my front yard. And I stop from this childish behavior, what the Bible will call a fit of rage. I look up, and what do I see? My Hindu neighbor friends walking through the neighborhood, what they like to do. And I've talked to them about Jesus. And they're walking right by that van right there and looking at me. And you know what they say? In their mind, at least, some Jesus. God's blasphemed. Let's finish reading the passage. Verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Try, try to follow this here. We'll, we'll break it down, but this is, this is kind of complicated here. Verse 26, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is, one, is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is fascinating here. Paul goes after the sacred sign of the covenant for the Jew, circumcision. That, that's what's in view here. And what does he say? Circumcision, like those other things, is good. It's good. It has value if you obey the law. If you don't, it doesn't. And this was not their perspective, though. They didn't see circumcision as a sign of the covenant. They saw it as the covenant. Don't take my word for it. Let me, let me give you this rabbinical quote from an ancient Jewish commentary. And there were many I could choose from. I just picked this one. They saw circumcision as a ticket to heaven. Listen to this. This rabbi wrote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. And Paul says... 
See this uncircumcised Gentile who wasn't given the law yet keeps the law? Well, he gets all those covenantal blessings as if he was circumcised. I mean, you've got to put yourself in the, in the, the seat of the, the Jewish reader of this. He's hearing this and he's saying, what? You can hear robes being torn at this point. As if he's circumcised? But Paul's not even done. He tightens the screws. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, Jew, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Paul's saying here the disobedient Jew will be condemned by the obedient Gentile. Now, not like, you know, he's their judge and God's the judge. That, that, that's not what's in view here. But what is in view here is the obedient Gentile will assume the role of a witness for the prosecution on the day of judgment. Such that the, the Jew in chapter 2 is a lot like the Gentile in chapter 1. They are without excuse. This Jewish person cannot say, hey, I didn't know. I didn't really know what was expected of me. I, I plead ignorance. That is not going to fly with the judge. His reply is, well, you have creation like all people do. You have the law written on your heart. You have that internal warning system called the conscience that will bear witness against you. That was verse 15 we looked at last weekend. And you're a Jew. You have the written code. You have the Mosaic law. And you're circumcised. And Paul's saying, here's why that defense isn't going to cut it. Sorry for the pun there. No, no pun intended. Every male just shuddered in here. <laughs> my son last night told me I had too many puns in my sermon. I was like, that's punny. All right, so... But what, what Paul is saying here, it's, again, he, it's like he presents a Gentile. He presents a Gentile and he says, see this uncircumcised Gentile? He, he doesn't have all the privileges that you have. He, he doesn't have the law. He, he doesn't have all that you, he doesn't know all that you know, but he did what was right and was obedient. Therefore, he is exhibit A submitted by the prosecution as evidence a living testimony of your guilt. That's the kill shot right there. Now, even as a Gentile, I'm not even sure I can fully understand what's going on here, but I know this is major. Maybe you're a Jewish person who's really sensitive and aware of your heritage. I think you understand what's being said here. It's major. Because the reality is God demands obedience. We heard it last weekend, saying it again this week. The obedience doesn't save us. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, amen. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't demand obedience. Fu said it up here earlier. This is a common theme throughout Scripture and should be emanating from this, this pulpit here, whether in worship or in the, in the preaching. Because it, it's, it's obedience, but it's not a, a certain kind of obedience. God is not looking for that outward, showy, ostentatious, flashy obedience where, where people look at you and think well of you, and it's just surface level, but inside you're corrupt. That's not the obedience he's looking for. We saw Jesus' take on that in Matthew 23. God is about the inside, obedience from the heart. 
And that's what Paul gets at in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is doing here is he's stripping the Jew and you and me, for that matter, of everything that they would put confidence in to be right with God, apart from Christ. For the Jew, it was what? It was being a Jew. It was their heritage. It was the fact that they were given the law, or it was their outward conformity to that law, or at least the appearance of it, or it was circumcision of their flesh. And Paul's saying, no, you need circumcision of the heart. And we need the same thing. So before we look down upon the Jew for trusting in those things that cannot save, what about us? How often are we trusting in things that cannot save? Good things. We're, we're, we are a privileged group here. I know that word privilege gets tossed around a lot today, but we all are privileged in this place. Pastor Ben prayed it, talked about the cushy chair. I sat there, I'm like, yeah, these chairs are cushy. It's a nice temperature-controlled building. If it was pouring outside, we'd all be protected from the rain. We have this building. We are privileged. These are good things. Good things like, you know, maybe you're trusting in your own heritage as a Gentile. That you were born into a Christian family. Praise God. That's great. It won't save you, though. I go to church. Here I am. Sunday morning service. I'm here. Well, that's good, but it won't save you. But Mike, I'm a member here. It doesn't matter whether you're on the books or not. It's good to be a member, but it won't save you. I give generously. Mike, you don't know what kind of checks I write. You're right, I don't know. And praise God that he gave you the gift of generosity. That's good, but it won't save you. I'm a rule follower. I'm very moral. Say it with me. That's good. It won't save you. I've been baptized. I read my Bible every single day. These are great things. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper here today. None of these save. Jesus saves. And I would even say this. It's not even your faith that saves you. The faith is the vehicle that gets you to Jesus, to trusting in him. It's Jesus that saves, not your faith in him. It's him. And what you and I both need is we need that circumcised heart that Paul talks about. And we might, what, is, what does that mean? I'm not sure I understand that. Well, here's how I'd put it to you. Like circumcision of the flesh involves cutting, the same thing is true for the circumcision of the heart. We need to be cut. Because that's why I started the sermon where I did. We looked at the uncircumcised heart. It's hard, it's tough, it's stony, it's, it's unresponsive to God. Therefore, it needs to be cut. But people don't want to hear that. They often want to have their ears tickled rather than their heart cut. And I'm here to cut hearts today in love because that's what the text says. The circumcised heart that has been cut, it bleeds out sorrow over sin. Do you, how do you feel after sinning? Do you, do you, is there remorse? Do you, do, you, do you ever get literally down on your face and plead for mercy from God? You know, you didn't lose your salvation, nothing like it, but you were just so grieved. You sinned against the God who has been so kind to save you. 
That's the circumcised heart. That's what it looks like. The circumcised heart has been cut, and it cuts and breaks from worldly things. You know, I've really been, been feeling this one. I, I'm in the hospital with my boy Nate, and I got some downtime. I go out to YouTube. I can watch a sermon. I can watch a teaching. I can watch Ray Comfort. I can watch all these different good things that are going to edify me and that help me maybe become a better preacher and grow in my knowledge and love for the Lord, all of this. And I'm watching stupid videos of cats playing with yarn. I mean, just dumb things. I mean, not necessarily sinful things, just time, just wasting time. And it's not helping me as a believer. But my circumcised heart says, no, 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 I crave the things of God. And you can find it on YouTube, as well as cats playing with yarn. The choice is yours, right? The circumcision heart that has been cut has been conformed to what the Bible says about our sinful condition. It doesn't reject and say, I don't care what you say, Mike. I don't care if you quote that book. I got a good heart. I got a good heart. And I'm not talking about the, the good heart that God has done, the heart transplant, taking out the heart of stone, giving us the heart of, of flesh. No, people just, the most God-hating persons, like, I know I have a good heart. Doesn't sound like the circumcised heart speaking there. Because it recognizes all of our religious activity is utterly hopeless. This is a good thing. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. This is not earning you one ounce of merit before God. He doesn't love you more because you're here and not home sleeping in. He loves you the same. See, until you have all your false hopes smashed to pieces, you need to do false hopes like I do weed whackers. Okay, smash them, pieces on the ground. Until that happens and all you have left is Jesus, you won't turn to Jesus because it's then that you're ready for him. We sang that song, uh, that new song that, that, that they sang up here. I didn't know they were going to do that. All I have is Jesus. Amen. But that's all you need. That's all you need. Because otherwise, you'll be like that rabbi that I quoted who's giving his confidence, putting his security and his confidence in something that cannot save, that ticket to heaven, whatever it may be. Whatever yours is that isn't Christ, it will burn like flash paper on the day of judgment before holy God. It cannot save you. Jesus and Jesus alone saves you. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's about Jesus, like everything else about him, his life, his death, his resurrection. He did what you and I could never do. No amount of religiosity, ritual, effort can save you. It is Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He lived the life we should have lived. He actually accomplished it. But he died the death that we should have died. should have been me hanging on that cross. And the good news is he's alive today. Forevermore, he is alive. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, you know what he's not looking for? Religious folk. That's not what he's looking for. You know what he's looking for? New creations in Christ. People whose lives have been transformed. Galatians 6.15 says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If you're a new creation here today, your life has been transformed, the old has passed away, the new has come, we invite you to partake in this Lord's Supper.
If that doesn't describe you, you just kind of stumbled in here, you were invited, you're like, I'm not a believer, I'm just kind of checking things out. So glad you're here. If you're at home, so glad you tuned in. These things get shared. Um, glad to, to have you. Uh, but I need to tell you that 1 Corinthians 11 tells me that I need to guard the table here. And I need to say this is, this is not something for you to participate in other than observing. I have to say that. If you don't know what that means, you want to talk about that, I'd love to share with you the best I can after the service. But for those of us, new creations in Christ, this is how the Lord's Supper will work. In a moment, we're going to play some music. During that time, just use it as a time of reflection. Just, just think about maybe false hopes that you're, that you're trusting in. Uh, confess any sins that you haven't already confessed to God. He already knows, so you might as well just tell him. But use this time to just kind of settle yourself, okay? Do that, and when you're ready, uh, what you'll do is you'll just come up, uh, so we have some kind of order. You basically come up through the outer aisles and back up through